And look, we live in a time where division serves a certain group of people. But if we boil down the things that people on the coasts care about, right? And people in the Midwest care about, people in Texas care about, in Florida. Like, I care that my kids are well-fed and that they're, they have a great shot at life. I care that the environment that I live in is clean, that I breathe clean air, that I drink clean water, right? I care that animals are treated well, even though I am a meat eater. I don't want anything to suffer unduly, right? And and I want the climate to be good. I want the, you know, planet to be here for future generations. I don't think anything in that is divisive. I think Republicans can agree on that, Democrats, independents. This stuff just makes sense. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, the podcasts are about stories. Well, today it's a story about somebody who's a storyteller and Josh Tickell. And Josh, welcome back. It's been like five or six years, Josh, after kiss the ground that you were a guest on farm to table talk. And I've, I've kept plugging along and you've been doing films and, and you and your wife, Rebecca have produced another one that's out making the rounds right now, common ground. And I've seen it twice. Hmm. And when I ask myself, why am I doing a podcast uh, conversation, any podcast I come up with, I think one of the reasons I thought in your case, Josh, this is a long introduction is that, uh, I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I had a chance to talk to you. I'd like you to be able to introduce you to some of the folks that are listening to my podcast regularly. And if they haven't seen it already, I hope they figure out how to go see it. So, so Josh, welcome back to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me, Roger. It's great. It's great to be with you and your audience. And wow, six years, we should have a, you know, a reunion. Uh... I know, I know. You know, I was... I was Champagne so impressed that when we did this like six years ago, I was so wow. impressed with your ambition. And, and then when I saw, you know, I listened to the book, I saw the movie, I did the podcast. Uh, I've kept track of things going on with Kiss the Ground of different yeah. communications. Then I saw Common Ground coming up. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder... What gave you the feeling that this is a film that had to be said? I mean, you know, you've already said a lot of these things before. Why was there need to make a new film? Well, first of all, we haven't fixed the issues that we brought up in the first. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So that's a that's an indicator that uh, we have to keep going. But as we get close to ending a film project, we often see all of the things that we would have liked to have included. Um, people come out of the woodwork at the end. Ideas come up that you didn't have. And as you're kind of crystallizing and finalizing this, this structure and this movie that's going to be seen by, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people, um, you're watching it a lot with different groups and you're getting feedback and, and writing the notes down people. Oh, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, this is happening in Africa. Well, did you know about this thing in Egypt? Well, what about this? This is going on in Australia. And all of a sudden mountains of information start coming in and you go, uh Oh, seems like there might be another movie. Um, but with kiss the ground, we knew from day one that if the thesis of the film was true, that soil could sequester tremendous quantities, maybe even a teraton, maybe even more of carbon. If that thesis was true, if deserts could be turned back into lush ecosystems, sustaining plant and human life and animal life, if that was true, um, even if 50% even if of the thesis was accurate. This was the biggest subject that we would ever cover. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and there was no way we were going to be able to cover it in one 90-minute documentary, you know, Kiss the Ground. Mm -hmm. And so that has now spurred three films. So Kiss the Ground for the first film, Common Ground's the second film. And we have begun now officially working on the third film, Groundswell, which is the international story. So, you know, it's a trilogy, just like Star Wars. <laughs> we're using the force for good of soil. <laughs> well, you are taking off, you know, the three projects you just mentioned, the one you did, the one you've got out right now, the, the one that's coming before. What do you look that led to that came before you, before you were doing these films, either uh, books or somebody that, or, or films that, that you kind of stepped in and saying, okay, it's Josh and Rebecca's turn. You know, we've got to take this story about food and agriculture and help take it to another level. Was there a handoff in your mind? Was this one of these kind of a relay that, that, uh, you, that there was some predecessor to what brought you to where you are today that you could take it in these next stages? Well, so many predecessors. I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of, of many great humans who have worked on this issue. Um, you know, from like Upton Sinclair writing The Jungle yeah. in that 1920-something about the conditions of the cannery workers in New York, many of them children, you know, uh, and just the, the horrid conditions of the food. All the way through, I mean, look at Eric Schlosser, Fast Food Nation, look at Food Inc., look at, you know, the work that, uh, and then the divergent movements, you know, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and, and farm worker rights. And and uh, you've got people like Wendell Berry, who've been thinking about this for ages, and the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. And, and the list goes on and on and on with activists and scientists and filmmakers and storytellers and writers and you know brave individuals who many of whom put their lives on the line to try and move the system in a sane direction and when you have to feed you know 7 billion soon to be 10 billion humans that is a system and in fact, it's the most important system. And in North America, it's the most profitable system we have. It's more important than drugs, guns, or oil. It's a trillion-dollar market just in North America, the food market. And so we underestimate it. It's like fish swimming in water. We fail to recognize that the food system is the single most powerful system ever created by a species. Yeah. And yet, we're beholden to it. It's not that we're driving it consciously. We're unconsciously subjects in this sort of reversal of fate uh, in which the food system is dictating our fate. And it's deciding, well, you know, eight, eight or nine out of 10 Americans are metabolically unhealthy. That's, we're being driven. We're not driving. And so when you look at that and you go, but the same system has the potential to stabilize the climate yeah. and it has the potential to restore ecosystems. It's like, okay, we got to, we got to pull back. We got to get the perspective right. So mm -hmm. that human beings that are now inside the machine that we created completely unaware, we've fallen asleep or unconscious. We've got to pull back. We've got to get that perspective, that 50,000 foot view where you can go, you see those little things that look like ants in there? Those are humans. That's you. And you are inside a machine. And you can determine how that machine works. That machine's either going to end our species or it's going to stabilize the climate and give us another thousand years of civilization. That's up to us. So that, you know, long answer to your very short question oh, no it's a great answer and in fact it, it yeah. may kind of look at something on my notes i just finished reading a book called the worst hard time by timothy egan are you familiar with that um no but i'm familiar with the author timothy egan. Yeah. yeah it's about the dust bowl mm -hmm. and so he's talking about the seven or eight western states and, and looking at the contrast of how rich the the low prairie grasslands were across the the whole southwest uh, from Eastern Colorado and, and, you know, Kansas and the panhandle of Texas and, and Oklahoma and what that world looked like when Indians were chasing Buffalo across the area and this, you know, great natural grass. But then what happened with policies and so forth that started 
digging it all up and led to the dust bowl and you ended up having having you know millions of tons of earth blow literally all across the country and a couple days made washington dc black with the dust the topsoil blowing from that area and mm -hmm. I, actually i read that book just after i'd seen common ground the second time mm -hmm. and, and it was kind of clicking together so it was you know, some of my listeners are wondering, where are you going with this, Roger? But it was kind of this this buildup, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like I said, it's kind of like you and Rebecca could look and say, OK, here's where we get on. We can take this story and we're going to the next stage. And when I asked you the question about those next stage and what led to it, I, I didn't really think about how you do keep kind of getting more into the tent. I mean, you had with Kiss the Ground, my reaction to Kiss the Ground is that I? It, it just felt to me like there were too much of American agriculture was a little left out. That mm -hmm. that there was a way to let larger scale agriculture was not necessarily you know evil, and they can intend to do the right thing and so forth. And then I thought with common grounds, you you made even more of an effort to um, to bring them in and and show different size and scales of operations and types of operations. And so I'm not surprised that the whole world is your next horizon because you've you've broadened it and maybe you've broadened it because there's more ready to get in the tent with you on this subject. And and I can't wait to see what happens when you're taking on a, a global perspective of this. Yeah. Well, there's three things. One is, you know, you said what was the sort of what was the handoff? The handoff was the environmental movement itself. And if you look at the environmental movement, it's largely been separate from the farmer movement, you know, we've got, we've got totally separate groups of people running these shows, right? Farm Aid, that's Willie Nelson, Neil Young, those people, you know, Midwest, right? And we've got the environmental movements, largely coastal. Um, and there's never really been a good reason to unite those two movements. And if you begin to pull back, uh, you know, in the environmental movement even further, you go, well, there's issues of, you know, there's issues of racial justice here. There's class warfare. Um, there's there's food as a weapon being used in cities. And, you know, I know these are very hot button words that I'm saying. But if you just kind of, you know, let them kind of wash over you and you go, here's the point. Everyone is involved in the regenerative movement. It's common ground. Like we all eat, right? We yeah. all eat. So, you know, white, black, doesn't matter what our skin color is, brown. We all want to feed our kids healthy food. And that should be right. That no child should have to eat food that's not healthy. And no child should have should not have access to nutrition, right? That's so right. when you think about that, it's like, well, okay, this is this is a common issue that expresses itself differently for different people, right? And so when you pull back and you go, well, yeah, is there a right for a human being to live in a world that is not a climate disaster? Is that an inalienable right? Like, do we give that, is that a birthright, you know? Um, if it is, then the environmental movement's got to get a whole lot bigger, right? Which is why, now, you know, Ben Jealous, the former director of the NAACP, is the director of the Sierra Club. Mm -hmm. You go, oh, for the first time, farmers, people who are working on class and race issues, and people who are working on the environment are all under one tent. Regenerative agriculture and regeneration is the next movement. It's not like Oh, is there going to be, is it going to be bigger than this other movement? No, it is the only movement. Yeah. It's the movement that will determine whether or not human beings continue on earth. And I don't know if we're evolved enough to do it, right? I think we are. That's my thesis. My, my hope is that our consciousness collectively can understand what the regenerative movement is saying and that we can adapt our actions to the modeling that we know will work. And that modeling is nature, right? So that, where did it come from? It came from different places. And then there's a farmer movement, which is happening globally right now. Yeah. India, 
the Netherlands, Germany, France. I mean, you're talking about literally over 1 billion people mm -hmm. protesting and not having access to basic financial infrastructure, which doesn't take away their land, basic agreements that allow them to sell into a marketplace that isn't insane. Uh, it, that's like that's like one sixth of humanity. <laughs> There's like I said, there is no bigger movement. Regenerative agriculture is the biggest movement. So when we look toward, you know, why make a second film? It was to get across the idea of like, this works. You can restore farmland and ecosystems and provide abundant calories, more calories than we're doing now, anywhere. You can do it in Minnesota. You can do it in Iowa. You can do it in Ohio. You can do it in California, in Florida, in Mexico, right? The third film is to show that on a global level. And the movement has grown and accelerated. As you know, the theaters that are showing this film, we had, we booked the film into Ann Arbor, Michigan. I forgot about the booking. Um, and somebody said, well, what about Ann Arbor? And they said, well, isn't there an ice storm going on in Ann Arbor? And they said, oh, well, it's a shame we booked the film during the ice storm. The next day I get a phone call, 700 people showed up in Ann Arbor in an ice storm. They ran their own Q&A and farmers from Michigan run the q and I didn't have anything to do with it. That's happening all over the country and it's soon going to happen all over the world with the theaters. So people are using the film as a way to galvanize this movement that I am not the leader of. Rebecca, you know, Rebecca and I made the film. We're certainly part of it. We're for it. But it's a it's it's a different kind of thing. It's not a charismatic, leader-driven movement. It's a distributed, open source, and very powerful movement because the tenants can't be bought or sold. It's knowledge. That's what that's what the regenerative movement is fueled by: knowledge of how to regenerate land, farmland, resources, nutrition, and communities, and that you can share with anybody. You know, it strikes me as you talk that we've got uh, two different kinds of metaphors here. I mean, on, on the, the one hand, uh, it's easy to talk about the big tent and you want to get a bigger and bigger tent. But then, you know, think about common ground. That's the soil under our feet. And it's just, uh, you know, it's not only what's over us that we all get within the same tent, but literally what connects us all is is the soil, is the, is the earth. And... Um, I'm gonna to have to play with that. I'm not ready to uh, have it be a film, but it, it it just it just strikes me. It's kind of a paradox that uh, that these different metaphors. But now you do literally connect the world. You connect the eaters. You connect different, and you did such a good job already on this this film of connecting different types of operations. And I've talked to other people that saw um, actually have seen both films now too. And I can see examples of it's caused them to do things differently. It's caused them to, uh, I just spoke to somebody that I'm going to do a podcast with that uh, went up to North Dakota and, mm. you know, and they were able to attend a field day by Gabe Brown. Oh, that's great. And they drove back Minnesota and she and her husband talked all the way back and they said, you know what? I think we can do this. And they started farming like him. And I, I think of all the people that can see your films right now and they can they can view that. So I can see how somebody can come away from that and be inspired to change their farming operations. But then you also have consumers and voters that can be affected by it as, as well. And, uh, you know, and, and so now that you, you kind of get into that of people paying attention to how their food is being grown. And you also, I think, are encouraging, you know, policies to be supportive, not any specific one that comes to my mind right now, but but that can have implications probably for state and federal legislation, possibly even policies in other parts of the world as well. Well, you mentioned the Dust Bowl, and the Dust Bowl was essentially a policy consequence. Yeah. Right? Yes. We are living in 
that was an acute symptomology of land that had been degraded in a fairly short period of time. Mm-hmm. And you could see the natural symptomology of, you know, removal of a tremendous amount of biomass in a short period of time. We now have a dust bowl that's chronic. So we live with it every day. So I'm here today in Arizona. We're, we're opening a theater here tonight, the Harkins Theater. It's beautiful what's happening all across the country, these different groups opening these movie theaters to, to show this. And they're bringing their moms and their dads and people who are not in the tent yet. Yeah. But as I drive around the Southwest, what I see is a tremendous amount of woody shrubs, right? See a lot of sagebrush. Um, I see an ecosystem that is so far past the point of collapse Mm -hmm. that the ecological memory of the people who live here is the baseline has shifted. So they think what they're looking at is this beautiful outdoor kind of New Mexico, Arizona desert. And when I look at it, I go, no, you don't understand. This ecosystem collapsed. Right. It was it was probably collapsed 100 years ago. We created the deserts. Yeah. The advent of barbed wire. Barbed wire was the invention in, in North America. We have different scenarios in different countries. But specifically in North America, when barbed wire began to be rolled out, um, and I'm not saying people did this because they wanted to have this consequence. They did this because life was difficult. Okay, you could die of an infection, of a, a scratch from a nail on your wagon. You know, this was tough times, right? To have your cattle in one place was very convenient. But by segregating land in which four-legged animals used to move, grazers moving. Now, Go anywhere, anywhere in the world, United States, Britain, you name it, India, look at grazers, look at four-legged creatures with your eyes, stop your car, look at them. Tell me if they're moving. 99.9% of those grazers are not moving. We have stopped the movement of four-legged creatures across the land, period. We have decided that creatures should do what humans do, which is sit on our butts in front of computers <laughs> or TVs or, you know, in an office. Creatures, neither humans nor creatures are made to sit. Yeah. Four-legged creatures, when you stop them from moving, you stop the biogenic cycle. You literally halt it. Carbon stops moving into the soil. It starts moving up. Water stops moving out of the soil. It evaporates completely. The soil dries up. The grasses go away. And instead of a functioning carbon pump that's circulating carbon and water, you end up with bare ground. Mm -hmm. That is what we have throughout the United States, which is why you can go to any major agricultural area, including California, the number one gross receipts producer of agricultural produce, in the country, maybe the world, and the dust blows mm-hmm. every day. It blows in your eyes. And the wind picks up because the solar radiation in that area is stronger because there's no ground cover because <laughs> you remove the grasses when you stop the grazers from moving. Now, that's degenerate ab- agriculture. That's you know every kind of thing that we've been doing as a species. Sure. To regenerate that is pretty simple. You move the grazers. That is step one. You get the grazers moving. Mm -hmm. And this is such a simple, painful, difficult concept because, again, our baseline of understanding of how it should be has shifted. And when you go, what, you mean you want to have cowboys again? And cowgirls, yeah, that's what we want. And in the areas in common ground in the movie, as you've seen, Roger, Alejandro Carrillo, he was a computer engineer who became a cowboy, got 2,000 other families involved in Chihuahua, Mexico. Now they do this on 2 million acres. They're transforming a desert, the Chihuahuan desert, the largest desert in North America. They are transforming it to a tall grass prairie ecosystem, an oasis. They're one tool. They have one tool. 
they move the cattle. They keep them moving. They do not stop. Those cows do not lie down in a field like 99.9% of the cows in the world do. They move. If a cow is sitting, it better be giving birth or sleeping. Otherwise, it is degrading the land. And that is the same for almost every four-legged creature. And even in winter, we have examples across this in Siberia where they are now moving the grazers and they are stabilizing, stabilizing permafrost by moving grazers because the grazers should be looking for grass under the snow. So, you know, I could go on and on and on about regenerative agriculture, but the changes that we're seeing, even since we premiered Common Ground in September, people have changed their land in in six months. That's amazing. In the time since Kiss the Ground, the the first one, and Common Ground, I think livestock are getting more respect. I think that the role of livestock being grazed, you know, properly, moving them around, uh, even if you've got, you know, a 300 acre farm in the middle of the country, you might have a pasture and you can move them over to cornfields and you can kind of move them around, you graze to certain levels and, and you can take that, you can take that mindset. But I think that for a while there, there was so much criticism on livestock and on uh, whether or not ruminant animals were contributing too much to climate change. This other side of the story was was really not getting out that much. Uh, and, and it seems to me that livestock are getting their due at, when you start talking about like turning a desert back into productive land again. Uh, that's a constructive role for livestock. And some people were getting used to thinking that they just need to encourage less livestock in the world. And this is a little different twist to it. Very different twist. But again, who is encouraging that and where do they live? You know, are these people uh, who encourage this, have they spent their life on a prairie? Have Mm -hmm. they seen the changes seasonally? Have they, have they physically been involved in an AB test, a Mm -hmm. test where you let land rest and you let it oxidize and burn off and turn into woody shrubs. And a B test where you've got ruminants moving constantly. Did they do that test? And I assert none of them did that. None of them are related to the ecosystem that they're talking about. These are folks who live in cities. Most of us do. We live in urban and suburban environments. Our baseline understanding for ecology is radically different than somebody who would have lived two or 300 years ago on this continent. Their baseline for ecology was very different. So we have a non-functional ecological memory as a civilization for the most part. Uh, I'm not talking about indigenous people. I am speaking specifically about Westerners and European, European. And then we apply that dysfunctional understanding and dysfunctional ecological memory to a dysfunctional land system. And then we think we're brilliant because we're like, well, clearly the problem is the cow. And it's like, okay, first of all, you don't understand how the ecosystem functioned before we screwed it up. Then you're layering a bunch of other assumptions on top of an ecosystem that has been manipulated and then you're looking at a singular species and going, this species seems to be the problem. I would assert that the same thinking could be applied to human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have had the advantage to really go see this story and then share the story. Yeah. And, and so it seems to me as a storyteller, as you and Rebecca are, you're now trying to let other people walk in your shoes. I've, We've been there. We've seen this. I want to share it with you. And I'm hoping that you'll get some insights just as we did, because it wasn't that long ago. We weren't seeing it as clearly as we are right now. And now you've got these movies. That's kind of hopefully people are able to, again, walk in your shoes. Look, the, the my hope is that they are. And um, blaming cows for the apocalypse, the environmental apocalypse that we find ourselves in is is blaming the final link in a, a massive chain of events that started four or five, 600 years ago 
um, especially on this continent, but it really started 10,000 years ago with the cultivation of grain, right? And living grain. Yeah, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how ecologies work. Mm -hmm. And so, and the other thing is, do you really, really, really want to eat lab-grown meat? Which it turns out takes tremendously more energy than we thought and tastes way worse than we thought and contains all sorts of bizarre things that have never been introduced to the human diet before. Um, we know that the omega ratio in four-legged creatures that are live their life on grass entirely from day one to the end of their lives is right. similar to salmon. That is what our brain needs and what our body needs and what our heart needs to sustain. And when you look at heart health in Americans and you look at what they're eating, it's the processed garbage, right? And so now we're going to try and substitute four-legged creatures with processed garbage right. in order to make our... The logic falls apart really quickly. Whereas from an ecological standpoint, the cow, bison, elk, deer, um, and other undulates, I mean, camels even can be used for this purpose. That is the most efficient tool that we have. You don't have to put diesel fuel in it. It doesn't require solar panels. You don't have to plug it in to charge it at night. It needs the same thing everywhere in the world. It needs grass. The more you push it, the further it goes, the more seeds it spreads, the more it regenerates. And by the way, if you are inclined to eat meat, that is a source of protein that is unmatched. So the environmental movement, as, as righteous as it has been in saying this is the issue, has been completely blinded to the environment itself. And we've spent, you know, since Sting went down to the rainforest in 1988 and said, oh, my God, the Amazon's being destroyed by cows. No, the Amazon's being destroyed by land barons, loggers. Then it's replaced by corn and soy. Then it's replaced by cows. You see the cow and you miss the cycle of events. Whereas what we're seeing with regenerative agriculture, you use the cow. That is an engine. That is a tool. That is a, that is a powerful force of nature to restore the two-thirds of the planet that we've turned into desert. And in fact, if we don't use the cows and the other undulates and we don't move them and we don't graze them, we will not sequester the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. And the climatological implications of that will be severe. That is why the UN has failed for 20-something COP meetings to be able to stabilize the climate because they are not present yet to the idea of sequestering carbon. The only way you sequester carbon is with tall grasses. You cannot grow tall grasses without moving four-legged animals across the ground. I'd say, I'd say they're starting to shift your way, though. This last report of the last COP, they were seeming to have seen your films uh, because they were taking a whole different step of, of recognizing uh, a role of livestock around the world. And, and I was uh, surprised, pleasantly surprised, to see that last report. So it's kind of a, they're kind of heading your direction. It'll happen it, because there is no other way. That's why, it, you know. Well, and the one other thing, I think it goes almost without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is there's a lot of land that's, that's just not well suited for crop production. You know, we're not going to grow, you know, necessarily a lot of strawberries and cucumbers and broccoli out in that Arizona desert, but you could graze and bring it back and bring back the pasture land in a lot of those areas too. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have to, I think we have to look when we talk about ecological memory and we talk about baselines and what are we trying to achieve with this movement? We have to look at historical documentation. Mm -hmm. When Lewis and Clark came across the country, they consistently said from coast to coast that the grasses were the height of the horses, the top of the horses. Right. They they had trouble keeping track of where they were going because the grasses were so tall across the country. And they talked about the people that they encountered, the health and the stature of the men and women, the size of these people who had been eating bison and yeah. not just the nice part of the bison, but the bison heart and the bison liver and the bison testicles and the whole animal, right? And they marveled 
at the strength of these humans. And, you know, the the expedition themselves were eating something in the order of nine pounds of, of meat a day, and they didn't lose people to sickness as other expeditions had when they were eating the rice and the, the, the wheat and the sugar of England. So when we look at indigenous agriculture, we look at what we know existed on this con continent. We know to the best of the fact that we know any historical data, mm -hmm. that this was a tall grass prairie from coast to coast. Mm -hmm. And we know that people managed it. It didn't just accidentally happen. They moved creatures, they burned forests, they burned grasses. And so when we talk about agriculture and we say, well, what are we doing? We've taken two thirds of the planet and we've stripped it and we've turned it into a desert. That is a way of land management. We are land managers. Each of us is a manager of land. Every time we eat, we manage a landscape somewhere. We, we create that landscape. And so what if we reversed it? What if we recreated the tall grass prairies? Mm -hmm. What if we sequestered the carpet? What, what then? And the fear is always, oh, well, we can't feed humanity that way. I assert that the caloric intake per person on earth would be well and truly served in a regenerative agriculture system. Mm -hmm. Abundantly so, with protein included. Because what's happened as, as we've degraded the landscapes and turned them into deserts, what we can grow on the total land area of the earth, which is about 10 billion acres, that's rangeland and cropland has gone down and continues to decline each year. The actual caloric output per acre of earth globally is going down. We could skyrocket that. We could have, skyrocket. Have you been to the Land Institute in Kansas? Yes. Yeah, I have too. And it's right on the 100th meridian. And it, uh, it turns out uh, when uh, Wes established that, he had actually come from where I live on Sacramento State. I'm right on the campus almost of Sacramento State. And he had started the ecology department here and moved there where he had been from originally to Kansas and getting started. And they're doing some fantastic work on things like you're talking about and coming up with, you know, perennials that are uh, going to be, you know, deep roots and tall grass and, um, and that's that's kind of where it starts, right there at the hundredth meridian. Because from there on, both sides, you've got so much what's a desert if you don't manage it properly. But yeah, I mean, the, the Land Institute is literally at the top of the game of of restoring our ecology in this country. It is it is one of the most important institutions when we talk about how are we going to put this ecology back together, and we're going to do it. Yeah. I, I am convinced that this this movement we are we're at the tip of the iceberg. You know what? I am so happy to hear you talk about the momentum and how it's broadening. And and in fact, in some of the materials I saw promoting the new film, that it was uh, identifying that uh, people were recognizing you for having a, what should I say, having an impact on some federal policies too on on soil and talking to some big numbers that were coming out of USDA to be able to work on, on building soils back up again. And so that must be heartening where you can see some tracks of your work like that, that can make its way into federal policies. It's, I mean, I've never, uh, I, I've never experienced government bodies reaching out to us, asking for advice, asking for screenings, asking for, uh, you know, information, um, we, we have a policy that we give a hundred percent of our product, whether it's the film or, or materials that we create, any government agency or school can have it for free, completely free of charge. If they can't download it, we'll send them a DVD for free, our cost, not theirs. So, um, we created that policy because we realized that, that governments often couldn't, you know, they they had to do a purchase order, and if it involved information, that it could be scrutinized. But if they made a request and it was free, well, that was fine. So uh, we've had kiss the ground, and and now parts of common ground 
shown in multiple congressional hearings, testimonies, uh, congressional bodies, um, uh, some some very big uh, leaders have watched it privately. Um, so yeah, look, I think I've been working in the environmental movement, as I said, since I was six years old. Never have I felt, never have I woken up except for the last two or three years and thought, okay, this this is working. This is moving. And, and it's because that movement has siloed itself. It's because the environmental movement is nothing without farmers because farmers manage the majority of the environment. <laughs> right. So, you know, getting those two groups together has been unbelievable. You know, and, and in my case, I'm so happy that I could be sharing stories and having these conversations like we've had before, six years ago before, but even even now, because I've got some people that listen to my podcast across the country. One let me know that they run a large school system in a big city. They don't have anything to do with farming, but they're really, really interested in these directions. And I think he's probably listening to this particular podcast, too. And so all these ways where people are able to say, you know what, I think I can engage in this. They're going to say, you know, Josh is making sense with this this film, and uh, and I'm in. And now I, I kind of want to circle back to this, to, to bring us to that point that uh, farmers can see what you're talking about, and you're getting them out there, and you're helping sharing a story. So they can come away and be like the person I said from Minnesota, feeling motivated that they can do something themselves. And we're all hopefully going to be voters, and that can have some implications too. But what about the eaters side? I mean, have, have you some thoughts on how the eaters are able to play their part in it? Yeah, well, um, you know, first of all, for farmers, the great thing about the farmers in the film, and we've got farmers at very different scales. Yeah, you know, we've got farmer uh, the the ranchers in Mexico are two million acres. That's a big operation. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, that's the size of some, you know, small states and countries in the world. So, um, and then we've got farmers that are farming 50 acres in the film, you know, all of them have become ambassadors mm -hmm. for the movement. Some of them were already, but now some of, you know, many of them are on the road and they're going to screenings. And, and what's interesting about the farmers is they usually don't just go to a screening. The next day is a field day. Yeah. Or the day after is a field day. And they'll invite 50, 60, 100 farmers together. And so what we're seeing is what Gabe Brown started, which was, hey, come to my ranch. I've got nothing to hide. This is how I'm doing. I'm happy to share. You know, that's he really started the transparency of this mm -hmm. and the giving spirit of providing, you know, crazy filmmakers from California sure. um, access. And that has spread. And each of those farmers is now creating a community. And each of those people is creating a community. So that ripple effect is beautiful. The second piece of it, I think, is that, you know, eaters of which I am one, I think everybody listening is one. Sure. We vote three times a day if we're fortunate. And many of us are that fortunate in the United States. It is impossible to switch your diet to 100% regenerative food on day one. But by day 20, you might switch 10%. You know, you might switch your chicken, or you might switch what kind of bread you're feeding your kids. And I will tell you, I've seen this in my own household, and I there is not a screening that I go to where a mom or dad does not come up to me with tears in their eyes and say, you changed my family's life. Mm -hmm. first, I, first, I disliked you. <laughs> first, I disliked your films because I knew I was going to have to change what was in my pantry. Mm -hmm. But as we changed, my kid changed. And what we learned anecdotally is so many of the symptoms that Americans are dealing with from chronic inflammation in the body and the joints that affects the mind, that affects how we work, to issues that have to do with blood, 
skin, across the board, are food-related. They're all food-related in some way, shape, or form. Yes, genetics play a role. Yes, lifestyle plays a role. But when you take out the toxic chemicals that are in so many of our foods, especially wheat, with glyphosate being the number one desiccant of wheat pre-harvest in the U.S., all of that's going into our diet. All of that's even going oats that always crack me up with oats that you use oats. to kill them and then put it into uh, oatmeal that's uh, promoted yeah. being natural and healthy and so forth. Oh. And but, wait a minute, you soaked it in glyphosate. Healthy oatmeal soaked in glyphosate, garbanzo beans, same thing, hummus, very high in glyphosate. So you remove the toxins, the body begins to recover. You be, and these people begin to substitute and they're like, oh, well, you know, I know a rancher who's doing regenerative beef and I'm going to feed that to my family and see how it goes. Well, I know, a, I know a farmer that's got some chickens and they free range the whole, and I'm going to use those eggs. And gradually the diet goes from maybe 5% to 25% and the kids are paying better attention in school. The sicknesses are going down. The medications aren't getting used. They're not calling the doctor as often. They're not going in for that problem that they were going in for. And all of a sudden it's 50% of the diet and they're having miraculous health changes. And by the time you get to 60 or 70%, you will feel different. You will think differently. Your body, when you wake up in the morning, you will literally feel like a different human being. And because Kiss the Ground now has been out for over three years, Common Ground's been out for six months, we're seeing people come back to the theater and they're telling us stories mm. about how their kids are not no longer being diagnosed with ADHD. I mean, the stories are miraculous of how people's these, lives are changing. Josh, these steps too are interesting too, because some people would have thought they had to go hundred percent organic or that the only kind of good production would be certified organic. Uh, you don't discourage that at all because I, I think you are saying, you know, as much as possible, we should use no more chemicals than we have to and no more synthetic fertilizer than we have to and and so forth. But it's not exclusively organic is the only way forward, either as a farmer or as a consumer. We want this to be doable. We want this to be practical. This is a journey. It's not a destination. We're not going to get to regenerative agriculture 100% globally tomorrow. If we get there by the end of my lifetime, I will be smiling on my deathbed, right? Yeah. I do think we'll get there. I do. I do believe it. Um, but I think in terms of consumers, we're, we're sold the dieting idea. Oh, you've got to go paleo. you got to go keto. you got to go this. you got to go that. What I want to see is I want to see people make the transition in a way that works for their family financially, that works for their family. People are busy. People have busy lives. Moms and dads maxed out at work. The economy is in a bad place right now. So people are saving their money. And I get it, right? But when you begin to learn to shop around the edges of the supermarket, and you begin, and and as part of our commongroundfilm.org website, there's a subsite called 100 Million Acres. And 100 Million Acres, it's a place for people to come and be part of the commitment. Let's turn 10% of our agriculture regenerative, right? We're starting to highlight the logos of the companies that have made the commitment so that when you go to the grocery store, you go, oh, okay, those eggs versus these eggs. Absolutely, you should price shop. I'm not telling anybody to, you know, blow their whole budget on eggs. But as you experiment and as you go down the journey, you might find that you're spending a lot less on medications. Well, I is powerful. You know, I want to speak out uh, for the the middle of the store a little bit though too, because I think that's where the the differentiation is between highly processed or not. Because if you're just buying frozen blueberries because there's only fresh a couple months a year and you're buying from, fine, there's nothing else done to them. Or if you're buying canned diced tomatoes and all they've is been heated treated and put it in, into a can, there's more lycopene available. So 
that that's the only pushback I ever had on the perimeter of the store. It's kind of no, you can buy canned goods and frozen goods, you and dried fruits and dried nuts and all of that sorts of things. It's the uh, hyper process uh, is that you need to be careful about. Completely. And 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 look, this is not a perfect system, um, but we actually put out a PDF on the site about how you can shop on a budget regeneratively. And it's yes. Absolutely. If you can, if you can find organic and it's price comparable, yeah, the number one supplier of organic produce and, and products in the United States is Costco. They're the largest supplier of organic in the world, right? And so what we want to do is we want to shift Vaughn's and we want to shift Albertsons and we want to shift Windexy, all the big chains to regenerative. Yeah. And we want the consumers to be going, hey, I, I see this cucumber. Uh, can we get it regeneratively? Like, why not? I mean, I know that they have it at that other store, you know, it's going to take time. It's going to take time for your family. It's going to take time for your individual decisions, but look at it as a continuum. Look at it as a transition, pay attention to your body and your family, and especially kids. You can see the change in them so quickly when they start eating a more healthy, healthful less chemical-based, less hyper-processed diet. And look, ultimately what we want to do is we want to support farmers. American farmers today get four cents out of your dollar. Four cents. I want that farmer to be getting the lion's share of my dollar. I want to know that my money has gone to feed a family on the land and that they're keeping, they're taking care of that land. So that's that's the paradigm shift that we really have to push toward is this is about farmer prosperity. We want farmers to be prosperous. Some people that have stayed with us through this whole conversation are asking themselves, how do I stay connected? Um, so what advice do you have? They want to be able to find out where the film is, get on board. They could say, Josh, I'm with you all the way. How can I help? What do you tell them? Yeah, so great. Commongroundfilm.org. There's also kissthegroundmovie.com from the first one. Get on the mailing list. We're on all social media channels. We're on every single one of them. So LinkedIn, Twitter, which is now X, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. You can find us there as well. So we're excited to, to continue to grow the community. Well, and now Farm to Table Talk too. Again, <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks, thanks so much. I really get enthused with what you're doing. Wish you the best. Come back often. We need to keep talking about this. Thanks. Love it, Roger. Good to see you. Thank you. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 